You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to the book of Titus. We started uh, our first week in this book last week, so this is our second week. As you're turning there, uh, if you're new here, welcome to Citizens. My name is Jamin. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, If you're watching online, thank you for uh, joining us. Uh, Also, uh, happy Mother's Day to all the moms. This church uh, is, Taryn has already said all this more beautifully than I will, but this church is filled uh, with women who love Jesus and love their children. This church is also filled with women who love the people of God and offer a a spiritual mothering to the people of God. Uh, We love you, we see you, we honor you today. So thank you for who you are and what you do. Uh, And then before we turn our attention to Titus, I want to give an update about me. Uh, I will be going on sabbatical in a few weeks, so next Sunday will be my uh, last Sunday until after the summer is over. So uh, June 16th, 2013 is when I started pastoring at this church, and that's taken on a lot of different forms uh, over the years, but it means that I'm coming up on 10 years here as a pastor, so yeah. Thank you. Not trying to take the attention away from the moms. I just wanted to give you an update. Um, But the elders, in light of that, are gifting me with a sabbatical. Um, And so if you come here over the summer, uh, you won't see me. And I just want you to know I didn't quit. I'm not sick. I'm not in jail. I'm just on sabbatical. And I'm not sure, actually, if I'm going to have this. Next Sunday is celebration service, and those services are full. Uh, I'll be here for that. I'm not sure if I'm gonna have the space to say this though next Sunday, but um, I found myself being really reflective uh, coming up on this 10-year mark. Uh, And I just just want you to know, uh, I didn't find uh, the right words for it, but uh, it is a joy to be a part of what God's doing here. Uh, In these 10 years, especially if I think about these last four, um, I just feel an overwhelming sense of gratitude to you, church, You have been so kind to me. You have let me as a young preacher grow up. Uh, You have been patient with me. You've given me space to be weak and to stumble and to find my voice and to need Jesus. And so you, this church is so precious to me. You people uh, are really precious to me. And so thank you, I love you. Uh, In God's providence, we are in a passage today that is about pastors and elders. And so there's been a sweet blend of that reflection coming up to 10 years and then being in God's word about about the role that he's given me. Um, And so we'll dive right in. Look at verse five of chapter one. He says, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. A little bit of recap from last week. Titus is a friend of the Apostle Paul. They work together. Uh, Titus is the kind of guy who's really good in crisis. He is really good when things are going really bad. And so he's on the island of Crete because on the island of Crete, things are going really bad. Uh, The the cities on the island worship the Greek gods. The Greek gods and goddesses were not uh, great. They were uh, deceptive and violent and they had no self-control. We talked last week about how you, what you behold, you become. And the people of Crete were beholding these deceptive, violent uh, gods, and so they were becoming like them. And there were Christians there. This letter is written about 30 years after Jesus died and rose and ascended uh, to the right hand of the Father. And so there are a handful of churches on Crete, and things in those churches were not going 
well. The big problem is that a lot of the Christians looked more like the Cretan gods than they looked like the Christian gods. In fact, in verse 10 through 16, it talks about an even, uh, just, it adds more color to that problem. There are people teaching in these churches who look more like the Cretan God than the Christian God. And they're teaching what's false and then they're living lives that look nothing like Jesus. It says in verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him with their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And so there's leadership in these churches that's hurting people and hurting families. And as a result, the witness of the church in the city has been compromised. There's no compelling difference between the people who follow Jesus on this island and the people who don't. And this has been true every single era of Christian history. Christians who look just like the world around them have no power to change or help the world around them. And so uh, Titus is there and Paul writes to Titus and basically says, fix this. You're not gonna, it's not in the Bible, but essentially he's saying, hey, I put you there to help clean up this mess, uh, to teach what's true about God, to help these Christians behold the gospel of Jesus so that they become like Jesus, not like the gods of their island. Um, and, and they would adorn the truth with how they live. In verse five, he gives Titus the first step. He says, here's where you need to start. Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. He said, you know what these hurting churches need? You know what these confused people need? They need leadership. They need Christ-like leadership. In verse six through 16, he describes what godly leaders need to look like. Like here's, here's what you're looking for and then contrast that to what ungodly leaders look like. So there's a truth here that we've all experienced, and maybe you're new to church, maybe you're new to the Bible. I think I can describe something that you've experienced and that's familiar to you. It's, it's worth naming. Um, I was talking to a friend the other day. She played college basketball, and she played for a couple different colleges. Out of high school, the first place she went, she had a really bad experience. She loved playing basketball, but she had a really awful coach on this first team that she played for, and she just said, I didn't enjoy playing. Uh, for him, and so she eventually left to go somewhere else. Uh, one of our church members is a CEO of a large evangelistic organization. It's a large nonprofit organization. And I had another conversation. Uh, he had stepped into that role several years ago, and I was talking with one of his staff members a couple weeks ago, and she said, we have thrived under his leadership. And then she began to describe the kind of guy he was and how they have flourished since he became the leader. Last Sunday, I was talking with another church member, talking about life, and he said, you know, uh, my job's been really hard lately. Work has been really hard. And I said, why? And he said, well, mostly because my, my boss is kind of a psychopath. He does not work here at Citizens Church, just to be clear. But then he went on to describe all the ways that having an unhealthy boss has infused his life, at least his work life, with all these challenges all these conversations happen within the last three weeks. And so it's a coach that robs the joy of the game. It's a CEO that leads in such a way that people thrive. It's a boss that can't keep his own unhealth from spilling out on his employees. And coaches and CEOs and bosses, they all have a leadership role. Uh, they, and with that leadership role, they have a level of authority in the lives of the people that they lead. And how they use that authority will either hurt the people they lead or it will help the people they lead. So here's the principle, here's the truth. The most important relationship for any leader, a coach, teacher, mom, dad, boss, president, CEO, the most important relationship is the relationship between their authority and their character. 
When a leader has authority that exceeds their character, they lead selfishly, regardless of how gifted they are. They lead selfishly and proud, they're insecure, they're passive, sometimes they're abusive. When a leader leads out of high character, or even the best is when their character far exceeds the authority that they have, then the people under their leadership have the opportunity to flourish. So you can probably look back on your life and maybe you could just do an audit of the kind of of things you've been a part of, right? And you can think of leaders who have led well and people have flourished. And maybe you can think of leaders who have not led well, uh, maybe leaders who had more control than they had character. And things always go bad when that happens. Are you with me so far? Okay. Uh, Even on a day like today, Mother's Day, um, many in the room, you have or had a really caring, godly, high character mom. And you think about her with gratitude. I've got one of those. I'm married to one of those. Others grew up in a home where things were not good. Uh, mom was, was not great. And the relationship now is even painful. It might even be complicated. So today's like a mix of emotions for you. And, and here's what's happening. Moms have authority in the lives of their children. They lead their children. And there's a unique leadership that children need from mom. They can only get from mom. And when mom has a a kind of quality of heart, a kind of character to lead well, it's a gift to her children. When she doesn't, it hurts. It's painful. It's confusing. And this room is filled of of a mixture of those kinds of stories, people who can think about which one that they had. What I'm hopeful for in naming that is just that we can all see the relationship between those who have the responsibility to lead and the character that's required to do that well. And God has appointed leaders in his church. Uh, and, and he has given them all kinds of different names. It's elder, it's shepherd, it's steward, it's overseer, it's pastor. And God has given spiritual authority to those leaders to lead in the church. And Paul's gonna say to Titus, hey, the first step in helping these churches live faithfully is to appoint elders and then listen to what he cares most about about these leaders what God cares most about about these leaders. Verse six, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Where's the emphasis? Uh, Find a guy that's crazy gifted and can draw a crowd. Find someone who has these like really pronounced executive leadership skills. They can just make this thing run like a machine. The emphasis is not on what they do. The emphasis isn't even on their gifts. It's on the character required to serve the church of God. Paul's saying these churches are in a mess. They need leaders to help get them out. And the most important thing about them, what they most need is to have Christ-like character that exceeds the authority that they've been given. And here's why. Who leads the church of Jesus? Who is the elder of the church? Jesus, thank you. 1 Peter 5 all about elders, and it calls Jesus the chief shepherd. It means every other elder is an associate shepherd. They are an under-shepherd. And Jesus is the leader of the church. He's the head of the body of church, Colossians 1 says. And Jesus is not simply high character. He's perfect humanity. 
He uses his authority to bless and save and heal. And he's selfless and humble and gentle and courageous. This church is his. All churches are his. This church is his. And those who lead the church have a sober responsibility to do so in a way that reflects the head of the church, the elder of the church. It is a beautiful thing to have Christ-like leadership in a church. It is a devastating thing to have leaders in a church who look nothing like Jesus. Some of us could look back on our lives and we can think about that. We can name that. Some of us can look back uh, to a point where we uh, knew of or were in churches where the Christian leader lived in a way that disqualified them from leading. And that's really painful. I will never forget being in high school, Fairfield, Texas, at my dad's church, watching him sitting at his desk cry in his office because one of his friends, a pastor, had left his wife and kids in church to pursue a life of sin, and it's devastating. It's devastating when that happens. I can also look back, and maybe you can too, at examples of those who've lived faithfully, of those who've led well, finished well, uh, those who finish their assignment from Jesus and they will die with their integrity in hand. That's beautiful. And Paul writes to Titus and he says, These churches, they need Christ-like elders, and he unpacks what that looks like. He he exhausts all of his time describing what what the character of those kinds of leaders needs to look like. And I wanna consider that together. Before we do that, I wanna acknowledge something. This passage is about elders. Would you raise your hand if you are currently an elder at Citizens Church? Okay, praise God they come to church. Um, (laughs) If you saw, if you noticed, that's not a lot of us. That's a small fraction of the room. Um, and so part of what you'll hear this morning is, is, is you know, what, what you, church, need to hold us accountable for uh, in terms of the kind of leaders that we are and the kinds of way that we live. But there's more than just that. It's not, this is not just for the few in the room who are elders. The Bible teaches what theologians call the priesthood of all believers, And you see this in Exodus. There are some who have the role of priest, but all of God's people are called a kingdom of priests. And then Peter uses this language to talk about all of us as Christians in 1 Peter 2, 9. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here's what it means. Every Christian is in ministry. Every Christian. Uh, Some of us are in vocational ministry. Everyone who bears the name of Jesus is a minister and is deployed in God's world to live a life of ministry. So look, not all Christians have the role of elder, but every Christian is entrusted with the responsibility to be like Christ in such a way that it leads others into Christ-likeness. So here's an example that that, that comes to mind for me. Uh, My mom is one of the most godly influences in my life and has been for my whole life. Happy Mother's Day, mom, if you're listening She's not listening now, she listen, she'll listen later. Uh, a few days ago, well, it was the other day, uh, someone told me that we had a lot of downloads on our sermon podcast. It's just my mom listening over and over again. Um, so she listens and uh, she called me a few weeks ago after we'd finished the wisdom series and she wanted to tell me something. She wanted to share some things with me and she had written some things down that she had been praying for, for me and she named how she's seen these things grow 
in my life. And then she called me to faithfulness in those things. She encouraged me, she instructed me, then she prayed for me. Do you know what she's doing? She's leading me. She's ministering to me. As someone who has had authority in my life, she's offering motherly, elder-like leadership in my life. And that's one of a host of examples I can think of. I, I see this all over our church, the incredible staff we have that lead, the uh, volunteers, whether you serve in home groups or recovery groups or in our next-gen ministry or in another ministry of our church. These are people who don't have the role of elder but are ministering to, discipling, and leading other people. And that's what God has called all of us into. It doesn't take away from the unique role that God has given to elders. I'm not trying to blur the lines and say everyone is an elder, but every maturing Christian does a kind of eldering. We'll see this in chapter two in a few weeks. What I'm trying to fight against in making this point is that there's not some sort of group of super holy people who are used by God, and then everyone else gets to observe them being used by God. We're all in ministry. Every Christian is invited to live in a way that you're leading those around you to become like Jesus. So if I put it into a question, not the question is not how many in the room are elders. And by the way, the 9 a.m. botched this, um, and, but you look way godlier than them. So... <laughs> If you want to be used by God in a way that those around you become like Jesus, would you raise your hand? Okay, there's a character that's required to do that. There's a kind of thing that needs, what's most important in that is not strategy or gifts, but the people we're becoming. And Paul describes that character. It's the character that should mark the life of an elder, but also should mark the life of every maturing Christian. Three things from the passage. They are to be faithful in their home, faithful when only God is watching, and faithful to the truth. Faithful in the home, faithful when only God is watching, and faithful to the truth. Look at verse six. I'll read the first few words, then we need to pause. It says, if anyone is above reproach. I'm using the word faithful in our outline. Above reproach means free of accusation. It means blameless, and that's a repeated idea in these passages. Elders are to be above accusation in this area. It does not mean perfect. It cannot mean perfect. There is one perfect elder, and his name is Jesus. I've read this passage a 100 times or so in my life. I read through it a lot this week, and every time I read it as an elder or just read it as a Christian, I discover new ways I fall short of what's being described. So what above reproach is calling for in my life is not perfection but faithfulness, and what above reproach is calling for in your life is not perfection but faithfulness as we all lean on the grace of Jesus for our failures. The husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. We need to pause again and answer a question that this verse uh, begs. Uh, it's not the emphasis or the main point of this passage, so we're not gonna treat it like that, but it does need some time. Husband of one wife, all of the pronouns in this section are masculine pronouns. Does this mean that only men can be elders, and our answer at Citizens Church, the elders' answer of Citizens Church is yes. One of the qualifications for elders is that they are men. It does not mean that men can lead and women can't. Some of the best leaders I know are women. It doesn't mean that men have this character and women are incapable of having this character. Some of the most Christ-like people I know are the women in my life. In fact, 
In this country, Christianity is a majority female religion. There are more faithful Christian women in America than there are faithful Christian men. At this church, our church is majority female in our membership. There are more faithful Christian women here at Citizens than there are faithful Christian men. So this isn't about some sort of flaw in the gender. It's not about some sort of weakness versus some sort of strength. What the Bible points to is God's design, that God designed it this way, that God has made men and women different. And part of that design is placing qualified men, not every single man, but qualified men in the role of elder as they are called to protect and sacrifice and offer selfless, humble shepherding of the people of Jesus. And so as we consider the scope of passages that speak to the role of elder here at our church, this is where we land, that the role of elder is reserved for men because of God's design. It's really important that you hear me say something. At Citizens, this is what we consider an open-handed issue. And it's important to make this point because there's a lot of demonizing of the other that's happening around this issue. We consider it an open-handed issue. Okay, um, did Jesus raise from the dead? Yes. Um, if you deny that, you are not a Christian. That's a closed-handed issue. Is God a trinity? Yes. There are certain things that define what orthodoxy is for Christians, what separates between Christian and non-Christian, the things you have to believe to be a Christian. Um, if the question is, um, is one of the qualifications for elders that they are men, do we believe that? Yes, but that's an open-handed issue. Um, if you believe different than that, while holding on to the creeds of the faith, the doctrine of the faith, you are a Christian, because it's, it's open-handed. So it's like, um, I have a lot of, a couple of mentors in my life, counselors in my life that are Presbyterian, and our Presbyterian friends baptize babies. And we at Citizens believe baptism is for those who are old enough to confess Jesus for themselves. So we do not baptize babies. So we disagree with them, and you know what's true about them? They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We belong to the same family. We are confident we will see them in heaven and watch as Jesus tells them that they were wrong and we were right. <laughs> this is one of those open-handed issues. I learn from and admire people who disagree with me on this issue. One of the commentaries I read for the book of Titus is from a guy who disagrees with me on this issue. He's my brother. One of my favorite authors who writes on the crucifixion disagrees with me on this issue, and she is my sister. So it's open-handed, and I wanna say that just to say this. What you can expect from the leadership here around this issue is that we're gonna lead out of conviction. We believe this, that this is what the Bible teaches, but we will do so with the humble posture that this is not an issue that separates between Christian and non-Christian. Look, if you have any questions about that, I will be on sabbatical. Um, <laughs> but Adam Hawkins will be here. Adam at citizenschurch.com. Okay, uh, read this verse with me one more time. The husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Faithful at home. A uh, husband of one wife is someone who is faithful in their marriage. It, it means they practice, it, specifically, it means they practice sexual fidelity in their marriage. In the Roman world, there was a double standard. Uh, men uh, could have multiple partners, but women were expected to uh, be faithful. And Paul says, in the kingdom of God, that double standard does not exist. It's not a thing. Elders would be faithful in every way, uh, to cherish, to love, uh, to protect, to delight in 
their wife. When it says his children are believers, I don't believe this means they have to be Christians. The word in Greek can also mean faithful, and so it's a broader idea. And the reason I believe that is no parent can guarantee that their child follows Jesus. Um, that's not in our hands, that's God's, in God's hands. So it would be theologically inconsistent to expect a, 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 of a parent that they could guarantee that when they can't. It also doesn't mean, uh, this is personal to me, it doesn't mean that my children or any other elder's children or any other minister's children have this pressure on them to be more Christian than all the other kids at church here. They are not first and foremost pastor's kids. They are first and foremost God's kids. Uh, and they aren't to feel some sort of pressure to be some sort of higher standard of kid. I, as a pastor's kid, I felt that pressure growing up. God loves them, and he doesn't hold them to a higher standard just because of what dad or mom does for a living. What it's speaking to is that the elder is the kind of dad that the children respect. That's what it means. It assumes young children, children that are still in the home, and it's saying that the dad leads the home in a way that garners trust, respect, love from their children. In other words, the words that he speaks at church are easy for his young kids to believe because of the way he lives at home. Here's what we can all take away, regardless of what you do for a living. Who you are to the people closest to you is one of the clearest indicators of who you are. If you're married, it's your spouse. If you are a parent, it's your children. As a child, it's your parents. If you're a roommate, it's your roommates. Those closest to you have eyes on your life, proximity to you that others don't. And when who you are outside of the home is different than who you are inside the home, that's a problem. Your coworkers' words about you don't carry near as much weight as your child's or your spouse's or those closest to you. So here's what I read in this as a Christian and as an elder. I want my home to get my best. I want my home to get my best. I wanna be most faithful at home. I cannot church, I cannot think of a greater failure than if one day my kids say, dad was a different guy at church than he was at home and we liked the church version of him a lot better. And I need you to know I need grace for this. I'm stumbling in this. Uh, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, and the word meek means gentle. A couple years ago, we were walking through the Sermon on the Mount and uh, when we covered that passage, I preached a whole sermon about how Christians should be gentle, how they're called to be a gentle presence wherever they are. And I preached that sermon at a time when I, oh, there was a lot going on. What was coming out of me that I was responsible for is I was irritable, I was impatient, and I was not a lot of fun. And those around me could feel it. That night, on that Sunday, Carrie and I are sitting on the couch, and she said, hey, can I tell you something? And she was kind and calm and thoughtful, but she basically said, hey, you know that sermon you preached this morning about being gentle? We are not getting a lot of that from you at home lately. You've been irritable and impatient and kind of harsh and not a lot of fun. And I wasn't like, well, hey, but did you like the sermon? Because you know? <laughs> the sermon didn't matter. I, I, I was so convicted and so grateful that she loves me enough to tell me things like that because here's what she knows. She knows I don't wanna be something different at church than I am at home. And she in love is saying, hey, Jamin, there's a gap between who you are there or at least there's a gap between what you preached this morning and what we've experienced. And, and I need to pay attention to that gap. Where God has most called me to be most faithful is at home with the rollers. I want my best sermons to be the testimony of my life within the walls of my home. And friend, the same is true for you. Faithfulness matters most. Faithfulness matters most 
among those who are closest to you. And I know we have different jobs and different callings, but one of the questions you should be asking about your life is, is there a gap between who I am at home and who I am everywhere else? Is there somewhere other than my home that's getting my best? If I'm faithful somewhere else, but I'm negligent at home, it just won't matter. So the invitation is not to be perfect, but to be faithful. If there's a gap, by God's grace, to fight that gap, to invite the voices of those closest to you to help you and to love you. Faithful in the home, faithful when only God is watching. Look at verse seven. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. There's a not, and then there's a must be. Not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money. Must be hospitable, loving what's good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled. It describes a person who has spent enough time with Jesus that they know how to lead themselves. Someone who knows how to lead their own heart. So see this with me. Some of this is really evident. When, when someone's a bully, especially when a pastor is a bully, it's really easy to see because there's just this line of people that are hurt in the wake of their, of their abusive leadership. When someone is hospitable, that's easy to see. But there's a lot of this that is the unseen condition of the heart. Not arrogant, not greedy, loving what is good, disciplined and self-controlled. And it's the opposite of the false teachers in 15 and 16. He says about the false teachers, their minds and consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him with their works, which means this, the relationship with God had not made it beyond their mouth down into their heart, changing their life. So here's the warning we find. At least here's the warning I found. There is a way to fake some of this, and we have to pay attention to that. There's a way to appear humble when you're actually proud. There's a way to do things that are motivated by greed, trying to convince everyone it's motivated by God. You can hide a lot of who you are from others, even those closest to you. Like you can appear to have a lot of self-control around others, but then be ruled by sin when I'm all alone. We live in a performative culture. Uh, we care a lot about how we appear to other people. We care a lot about what others think about us. I don't want to assume, but I think it's fair to say that at some point today, you will likely wonder what someone is thinking about you. You will make assumptions about what people are thinking. You might act a certain way to try to make sure that people are thinking about you the things you want them to think about you. And so for some of us, what that can become is, is all of life can just become this kind of performance where we offer the best version of us to others, those who can see, and then we hide the parts of us that we're ashamed of. I've used this illustration before, but I, I, I find it helpful here again. In, in 2020, from March to May, we were online only. We only did online services. There was no in-person services, and, and nobody disagreed with that. And we recorded a service on uh, Thursday or Friday, and then we would post it on a Sunday. And when I preached, I preached in, in front of a camera. It was a camera, it was Chelsea, it was a couple of other staff members. And uh, the, the frame of the camera basically just captured my, the, my shoulders and my, and my head, right? So I knew that what you could see was only what was in the frame, and that was basically from my sternum up, essentially. And so there were plenty of Sundays where I would wear a shirt like this with a collar and I would iron the front, but I wouldn't iron the back. <laughs> you couldn't see. Um, and I would wear shorts or I would wear wrinkled jeans or I would wear tennis shoes. 
I think once I might have done house shoes, right? And I would get ready at home and I'd be leaving the house looking like that. And the kids would be like, is dad okay? <laughs> he looks really confused. The pandemic's really hard on him apparently. Um, but I only had to pay attention to what I knew you could see. Uh, I had this uh, frame within which I needed to look presentable. And then everything else that didn't capture me, I just didn't have to worry about. I could neglect those things. I knew what you could see and I didn't care about what you couldn't see. And there is a powerful temptation around us to live our entire lives like that. To only pay attention to what others can see within the frame that we present, that we offer. So I can present my life as being godly within the frame outside of that struggle with all this unconfessed sin. I can present my marriage as being in a really good place within the frame. Outside of that, we are deteriorating and not talking to anyone about it. I can present my life as being full of faith within inside that frame, but outside I have all these doubts and I'm afraid if I talk about it, people are gonna judge me. And that kind of living leads to two separate lives. It leads to who you are within the frame of what other people can see, and it leads to who you're becoming outside of that, that maybe only you know. And that duplicitous living where I am one person when others are watching and then I'm in a different person whenever the audience is gone. Here's a question I'm asking myself and I invite you to ask it of you. Who am I when no one's around? Who am I when only God is watching? Uh, there's no frame for God, he sees everything. There's no limit to what his eyes can see. Nothing is hidden from him. And here's... Do you know how we become people who are hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined? Do you know how we become that? By caring most about God's eyes on our life, not everyone else's. Tim Keller was interviewed a year ago or so. It was right after another major church scandal had come out. Um, another high-profile pastor was in the news because he was exposed for all kinds of hidden sin. And Tim Keller has lived a faithful life. He's uh, a life without any hint of scandal, to my knowledge. And, and he's in the last years of his life, and he will hear from our Lord, well done. And so the interviewer asks him, hey, what's the difference like, between you and others? Is it accountability? Like, Did you have someone in your life that all these other guys didn't have in their life? Is it a certain size of church? Is it a certain kind of church? Like, What do elders, pastors, leaders, Christians need in their life to protect them from this. And Tim Keller said this, I will remember this for the rest of my life. He said, the only true accountability for anyone is if the thing you fear most is losing communion with God. If God is such a treasure to you that you can't imagine doing anything that would jeopardize that. So more than I want this sin, I want the presence of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and I want it as close as I can get it. I wouldn't trade a moment with God for a lifetime away from him. It's David when he sins and he repents, he prays in Psalm 51, take not your spirit from me, God. Take everything else. Don't leave me. I'm nothing without you. And it's his heart that says, God, I don't want to profess to know you with my mouth and deny you with my life. I don't want to live a life in light of only what others can see. I want to live faithfully knowing that your eyes are always on me. And that's not just a question for pastors. Friend, are you faithful when only God is watching? If I only care about what others can see, I will be different as soon as I'm out of their sight. If I live it knowing that God's eyes are always on me, 
gracious and loving and delighting, then God will form in me a character that is the same no matter who is around because I am always mindful of the presence of God. He is always with me. We'll come back to this. I think it's important to say more. But the last one is this, uh, faithful to the truth. Faithful in the home. Faithful when only God's watching. Faithful to the truth. Verse nine says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The problem with the false teachers was not just that they were teaching lies, uh, but their reasons for teaching were also deceptive. It says shameful gain is the word. It means they were just trying to make money or they were just trying to make a name for themselves or something like that. So elders must hold firm to the word. Uh, hold firm in such a way that they are excited to share about it and then also willing to protect it when it's threatened. So let me get right to the point because I'm running out of time. We as Christians, we are a people of truth. We are a, a people that have these ancient creeds in an ancient book and so we hold to these truths. God is a trinity. Jesus is God. Our problem is sin. Jesus is the only way to salvation. All people are made in God's image. Jesus rose again. He will return and make everything right. Jesus models for us how to live. He forgives our sin. He gives us grace to change. And Christians have believed all of this and more for centuries. It's my job and my joy to teach these truths and to protect them when they're threatened. So there's a pressure around us right now to uh, capitulate to a changing culture and changing ideologies and to make Jesus more palatable, which is us trying to craft him in our image instead of conforming into his. And uh, as if, the, I think the idea out there is Christianity needs to evolve. I don't believe the teachings of Jesus need to evolve. I believe the teachings of Jesus need to be obeyed. And we need the courage to obey him in this moment that we live in. There is pressure, not just outside the church, there's a pressure inside the church to make Christianity about something other than Jesus or to add things on to Jesus. So pressure to make it a political fight against our political enemies or in our world, in our consumer area of the world, to turn church into a religious business, to define success by the number of religious customers that we have. We've talked about this before, but there's a way to fail as a church by succeeding at what doesn't matter. Uh, build something that's full of people, empty of the presence and power of God. Lord, help us. Jesus is not a commodity to peddle to religious consumers. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he's to be followed and adored by his disciples. And that's why we're here. And my job and my joy is to help us hold on to those truths, to cling tightly to belief and confession, to fight against anything that would take our eyes off Jesus. But do you know what you most need from me in that? And what I most need from you in that is that we believe this for ourselves in our heart of hearts, that we believe the good news of Jesus, the truth of our faith for us. You believe it for you and you believe it for me. And I believe it for me and I believe it for you. So here's how I wanna end this morning. The most faithful presence in the room this morning is Jesus. The best elder here is Jesus, who promised he is with us to the end of the age. He is the faithful shepherd, and he, and he wants to meet you, and he wants to lead you. So would you bow your head, and I just want to lead us in a time of prayer, of seeking Jesus together. And just ask, holy God, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead would just meet us. 
And church, I just wanna speak to a few of us, the, the things that kind of made their way to the top of my heart and all this. Are you faithful at home? Are you the same person inside the home as you are outside the home? And if the answer is no, like it is for many, if not all of us at times, would invite you to seek out Jesus, the chief shepherd, who has grace for you. Who are you when only God is watching? And goodness, friend, um, I hate my answer to that question. And so what really matters if you're like me and you think about who you are when only God is watching and the things you think are just all the things you wish weren't true about you, what really matters in that moment is what does God see? Does he see someone that he hates? Does he see someone that he despises, that he's disgusted with? Because if we believe that the God who's always watching and who we are when only God sees, if we believe he looks with anger, if we believe he looks with condemnation, if we believe he looks and recoils and he's disgusted, then our only option is just shame or hiding or running or pretending. But if he looks with love, if he delights in you, if he sees you right where you are, just as you are, and sees a son or a daughter. He sees someone whose life has been purchased by the blood of Jesus, whose sin has been erased, whose shame has been canceled, whose inheritance has been sealed in heaven and it's incorruptible and unchanging. Then he is the kind of God that we can move towards, not away from. And maybe some are here and they just don't care. And I don't know what to say to apathy. But maybe some are here and they want more and more communion with God. He invites you. He's here. He loves you. He welcomes you. And then there's some in the room and maybe you look back on your life and you think of a time when you have been hurt by a pastor. An elder failed to be these things that God has called them to be. And I just need you to hear out loud from an imperfect elder, Jesus will never fail you. He loves you. He sees you. He wants to bind up those wounds. Lord, we need you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. Oh, gosh, thank you, Lord, for this church. Thank you for these people. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the head of the body of the church that you made a way for us to belong to you, to become your people, to be cherished by you. We adore you, we worship you. Would you meet us, would you lead us?